0: I was up here trying to get this mint chewed up. I don't know why I put a mint in my mouth right before it came up here. It reminded me of an old story I used to tell in my youth as a preacher. There was a guy that uh, wound up preaching for two hours one day, and that was unusual because he normally preached 30 minutes every weekend. And so somebody asked him why he preached two hours. He said, well, in my young days as a preacher, I discovered I could put a mint in my mouth and it would last about 30 minutes. And when the mint was gone, I quit preaching. And he said, last week, I accidentally reached into my pocket and got a button. (laughs) So (laughs) if I were to preach for a long time, you know what it is. We're in Revelation chapter 4 today. If you have a new spring Bible, it's page 992. I'm so thankful for how you guys are getting into the word for yourself Uh, in this series. I see a lot of Bibles. I see a lot of notepads, and that's awesome because... You need to own this personally. And, and many of you have reached out and said, I want to get deeper into study of the Bible, which I'm grateful for. I want to let you know about something that happens at New Spring every month. The second uh, Wednesday of each month, we have something called Book by Book. And what that is, it's a, it's a time to just explore a, a book of the New Testament right now. Eventually, we'll go through the Old Testament but it's a time of, uh, of not only instruction, but it's a time where you get your hands on in the Bible. So you get a study guide, so that's this Wednesday night. And if you're interested in that, you can sign up for it. You can just get on your website, on you know, the church website, and look at what's happening. And there's a way for you to sign up. If you need childcare, you can sign up for that. But we, we do ask you to sign up because we wanna make sure we have a spot for you and that we have study notes for you. Those are free, it's completely free. It won't cost you anything, but if you're interested, in going through books of the Bible, it's a real opportunity for you to own that. Mary Alice leads that. Actually, this weekend, uh, she's talked me into being on uh, on there with her. So, if you're interested, you can. Like, if you want to, you can just do it at a click uh, and and sign up for it. Well, today we're looking at one of the most challenging chapters of the Bible to talk about, and the reason it's challenging. Well, there's a lot of reasons, but for me, what's challenging about it is it's short, and yet. Do you remember when you were a kid and you went to the amusement park and you got on a ride that was so fast it just sort of slung you around and it was hard to even process what was happening because it was going so fast? That's how this chapter is. So we're gonna do everything we can to process it, but there's a lot to cover, and at times we're gonna feel like we're getting pieces and we're not sure how they fit together. If you feel that way at the end of this message, don't stress about it, because actually as we go forward for the next two uh, messages, It'll get even clearer as we go along. So just grab as much as you can today, and then uh, we'll, we'll be talking more about it in the future. Well, now, speaking of future, when you get into Revelation chapter four, you are in the territory of the future. If you've been with us the first two, first three weeks of the series, you know that the outline of the book of Revelation is given to John by Jesus himself in Revelation chapter one, verse 19. And the, Jesus said to John, Write, which you have seen, that's past, that's chapter one. Write what is now, what's going on right now. That's chapters two and three where we were the last two weeks. And in chapters two and three, it's the church age. It's messages to seven churches which represent all churches everywhere. So that part now is completed. And now we move into chapter four where Jesus is going to tell John, write what will take place later. So from now on all the way to chapter 22, We're in the zone of things that are going to take place later. Now there are churches today, and I'm not trying to be critical, but there are churches and pastors that say, we do not study prophecy because there are so many different takes that so many people have about prophecy. And there's this idea that it's just incomprehensible and maybe creates confusion in some people's minds. I don't think that's a fair criticism, but there's the idea that we just do not study prophecy. We stay on the main highways, but I want to tell you three important reasons why it's important for us at New Spring and why we do study what the Bible has to say about the future. First of all, 26% of your Bible is prophecy. That's a pretty high percentage, isn't it? So if a person says, I do not want to study prophecy, what you're doing is you're saying, one fourth of what God has to say does not deserve my attention, and I think, for a Christ follower, that's wrong. For a pastor, I think it's criminal to say that. So one fourth plus of your Bible is by, is prophecy. Secondly, and this is very important to all of us right now, Bible prophecy is your only way to know the future. Now I put that verb in there deliberately. You could guess the future. and And for all of us who are Uh, paying attention to what's happening from various media sources in our world today. There are a lot of experts who guess the future. You have prognostications coming from Wall Street, Madison Avenue, uh, ESPN. I mean, just go on and on and on. And smart people try to analyze past patterns, look at the present situation, and they try to guess the future. But at the end of the day, nobody knows the future. I remember in 1991, it was either 90 or 91, I was on the board of a Christian university, and we were doing long-range planning. And I remember that the first assumption for the next 10 years was that there would be no wars. And it was only a few months later that the Gulf War came up. And so I thought all those, all those assumptions that we were making as we were walk, walking through that accreditation process, uh, the re- or renewal of the accreditation process... All of those things were, were moot points because we had made an assumption based on our guess for the future which turned out not to be the truth. So the only way to know the future is through Bible prophecy because the future, New Springers, is God's domain. Only God knows the future. We may guess it. We may prognosticate. We may assume it. But at the end of the day, there's not a single one of us who knows what is going to happen in 30 minutes from right now. Now, Here's what the Lord has to say about prophecy. And I love this scripture from Isaiah chapter 42 in the eighth verse. God says, I am the Lord. It is if God is handing you his calling card. You know, you, a lot of your business situations where somebody tomorrow is gonna hand you their card. And God is saying, here's my card. Here's my calling card. I am the Lord. Now, as he begins to tell us what he does, verse nine says, everything I prophesied has come true. And that's true. I mean, when you think about the 26% of your Bible, this Bible prophecy, a sizable amount of it has already come to pass. But nothing God has prophesied has failed to come true. God says, everything I prophesied has come true. And God says, and now I will prophesy again. And I love this line. I will tell you the future before it happens. I want you to imagine the Lord standing before you today. Because see, many of us are troubled about the future. I'm looking out on many young adults here at New Spring. And you look at the world around you, and it's so terrifying. And a lot of you have children, small children and grandchildren. I want you to hear Jesus telling you, I will tell you the future before it happens. There'll be people around you who won't know, and they'll be doing bizarre things and saying bizarre things but it's because they don't know what you know. The Lord said, I will tell you the future before it happens. I want you to think about, when when I drove into the campus this day, I get a little freaked out when I think about all the thousands of people who are gonna be quiet while I talk. That scares me to death. (laughs) But you know what gives me peace? Because you see, you're coming to hear from God. You're not coming to hear from me. I'm just the letter carrier. I'm just the postman. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, is a favorite verse of mine where the Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Well, what are the secret things? Well, primarily among them is the future. Because the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now, if there's a period there, we would agree with that. But notice there's a comma there and now a conjunction. Because the next word says, but... The things revealed, now I'm not trying to be too cute by half, but if you think about the book that we're in right now, what is it called? It is called Revelation. It's revealed future. Now look at this, the things revealed belong to us and to our children. So the future belongs to God, but when he tells us the future, then the future belongs to us. These revealed things become truths that we ourselves own. So the first reason why we study prophecy, it's one-fourth of the Bible plus. Secondly, it is because God tells us the future, and that's the only way we can know it. And the third reason is there is a blessing, as we've already seen, attached to the study of Revelation. So even if I'm clumsy today and do a horrific job of giving you Revelation chapter 4, you're still going to walk out with heaven blessing you for doing what you can to understand what God has to say. So here we are. We have now closed out the past from Revelation one. That's around AD 90 when Jesus appeared on the island of Patmos to John. We have closed out the present, which we are in right now with Revelation chapters two and three, the church age. And now we're headed into the future in chapter four. Now, one more time, I think I had you do this maybe the second week of our series. I want you to open up the book of Revelation if you have it. I want you to do something, I want you to do a physical exercise. I'd like for you to find Revelation chapter four, many of you there already, and then go ahead and and put in between your thumb and forefinger chapters four through chapters 19. Because Revelation chapters four through chapters 19 are all about a seven-year period of time that is yet to come. Now, it could begin this afternoon. Actually, it could begin late this morning. It could begin at any time. But chapters four through chapter 19 are about seven years in time that are yet to come. Now, chapters four and five are about those seven years, except the seven years there are in heaven. Now, if you put your put put a finger around Revelation chapter six and go through 19. That is the seven-year period of time on earth. So we all get that. Four through 19 are seven years of time, but chapters four and five are those seven years in heaven, and chapters six through 19 are the seven years on the earth, and that's what we call the tribulation period. So today, what are we going to begin studying? We're going to begin looking at what takes place in heaven at the beginning of those seven years and actually going all the way through. Now, I want us to look at verse uh, one of chapter four because now John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through the very coaching of Jesus is going to take us to look at the future. If you have the New Spring Bible, which is the New Living Translation, the first word of that verse is then. Other translations may have after these things. That's a very powerful expression in the Greek language with which, in which the book of Revelation as well as the New Testament was written. What it means is there's a major shift here. So after these things, as I looked, John said, I saw a door standing open in heaven and the same voice I heard before. So who was the same voice he heard before? It's Jesus the same voice i heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast the voice said come up here and i will show you what must happen after this now i don't want to get us into the greek language study but the greek words for this after this phrase are metatata and they're very powerful they mean seismic shift they're the first words of chapter one, uh, uh, chapter four, verse one, and they are the last words of chapter four, verse one. So this whole expression is bracketed on both sides by this expression that means we have a major shift, and God is going to do something completely new. Now, as John, as John begins to see what goes on in heaven, as the Lord has invited him up there to take a look at the throne room, he said, "I saw verse two, a throne in heaven, and I love this line." and someone's sitting on it. Now, John is not able to fully process everything that's going on in the throne room of heaven, but he gets this image, this visual image of the very throne of God, and he, he's not too definitive about the person that he sees on the throne, but I just love the fact that he says that the throne in heaven is not vacant. You and I are living in a world where the wheels are falling off. Those of us who are Americans, I know that many of you watch us from around the world, but for those of us in America today, we are watching a nation that we can barely process. I mean, it is a nation in free fall. And so sometimes as God followers, we can look at the craziness of our world and we can wonder, is there any hope for the world? I'm so thankful that before God even gets into the future at all, he allows John to say, I saw a throne and there was someone there. The throne in heaven this morning is not vacant. So whatever we're going to talk about today, if you need something from heaven, just understand that up there, the throne is not vacant. There is someone sitting on the throne who hears your prayers, who cares about you, who knows the numbers of hairs on your head, who knows when the sparrows fall. I'm glad he didn't say he knows when the eagles fall. there are not a lot of those. There are a lot of sparrows. So when you pray, I just want you to know somebody is sitting on the throne in heaven. Now, the second thing I like about it is the one he sees is sitting. Isn't it good to know that God is not pacing around, wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen here? He is sitting on the throne. Now, why do I like that? If you go over to the book of Psalms, you don't need to turn there right now, but a lot of the Psalms are very prophetic in nature. In fact, a lot of Psalms, we call them messianic Psalms because they are words about Jesus in the songbook of the Bible. I especially love the second Psalm because the Psalmist King David is writing about how that the power sources of this world flip God off. And how does God react to that? Let's read. Psalm 2, two. the kings of this earth have all joined together to turn against the Lord and his chosen one. Who is the Lord? That's God the Father. Who is his chosen one? That's Jesus. They say, let's cut the ropes and set ourselves free. Good morning, America. How are you? We don't believe in God. We don't believe God created. The Bible says God created them male and female. Do I need to even talk about that today? what, What you have is you have the power sources of this world flipping God off with both hands saying, let's cut the restraints. Now, how does God react to that? Does he get up in heaven and pace and wring his hands? No. We see the same thing in Psalm 2 we see in Revelation 4. In heaven, the Lord laughs as he, what's the next word, new spring? Sits on his throne. So when all these loud and proud voices in our world today from power sources and despots who rule nations cruelly. When they, when they rage against God, the Lord just sits in heaven and laughs because he knows what he's about to do. Now let's go back to Revelation chapter four. Now John is not able to process a whole lot of what he sees. He seems to walk away primarily with the color scheme of heaven. So for all of you who are into decorating and you love colors, I want you to get this image to the extent that you can. Verse 3, the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones. Now, in the Bible, we often come across the word glory. The closest definition to glory in the Bible is light. So John, as he sees the throne of God, says, it's like, and, and there are two words here, Jasper and carnelian. but really, I want you just to read that, diamond and ruby. Now, are there any two more beautiful gemstones together in diamonds and rubies. Some of you may have a ring on right now or a pendant in which you have diamonds and rubies. There's something very dazzling about that clarity of the diamond and that strength and beauty of the ruby together. So John said, when I, when I looked up there and I saw the throne room, it was, like, it was like diamonds and rubies. And then he goes on to say, there was an emerald rainbow that circled the throne. So now we've got diamond and ruby and the green celebrating life, the emerald rainbow around the throne of God. Well, I, can't, I can't wait to see that. How about you? Oh, well, we could maybe see it this afternoon if Jesus comes. We're going to talk about that. Now, this place where God dwells, Paul spoke to Timothy about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, he said, God who is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light Whom no one has seen or can see. Now, you've got two tenses there. You've got past tense and present tense. But tell me, those of you who love to study grammar, which tense is missing here? Future, yeah. Paul says, Timothy, the Lord, our God, lives in unapproachable light and glory. John gave us the colors. And he said right now, nobody has seen him in the past and nobody can see him. But notice that Paul didn't say no one can ever see him because someday we will see his face. We will be in the presence of God. We will be in this very throne room where our God dwells. Now we drop down to verse four and we are introduced to two very different groups that are situated around the throne of God. The first group, you probably have these words in your Bible, your translation. It says there are four living beings that are around the throne of God. These are angels. Now, I love to talk about angels because there's so much misconception about angels that people have. I've heard so many times when a Christ follower's loved one dies, you know, they'll say, well, grandma's an angel right now. Oh, no, grandma's not an angel. She's still her. She's a lot younger than you remember seeing her. Uh, she, she's, she's more powerful, more beautiful than you've ever seen her before, but she's not an angel. I don't know where that idea comes from. And, and here's the one reason why you wouldn't want any of your loved ones to be an angel because redemption was only offered to human beings. Redemption was not offered to the angels. When those angels rebelled against God that we talked about earlier in the book of Revelation, they were not given a second chance. Angels are special beings created by God to serve him and to serve us, the book of Hebrews says. But they don't look alike. And and any idea that we have that angels are like little babies with wings that fly around and twang on harps, that is so, so wrong. (laughs) Angels, they have different appearances. They look different. They do different things. They have different jobs. There's a hierarchy of angels. But it seems like what we're seeing right now, these four living beings that are around the throne of God are what we call cherub or plural cherubim. Now, John gives us a little description right here but if you're really interested I'd love not right now but I'd love for you to go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 1 because Ezekiel gets a chance to look at these cherubim and they are majestic and powerful and he talks about how that part of their part of their bodies are like wheels and wheels within a wheel and they can go straight forward in any direction and that when their wings flap they're like the sound of the ocean they're like the sound of the voice of God and then when they come to rest the wheels stop and the wings I mean, it's just cool, so I, I, I don't have time. Last night at 4 o'clock, I read it, but I ran out of time. So if tonight, today, today when you go home, you can check out Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, we'll leave them alone for right now because we need to go to the second group because it's going to get us into what we need to talk about today. There are 24 thrones, small thrones, around the throne of God, and the Bible says, this is in verse 4, so look at it if you have your Bible open, 24 thrones surrounded him, and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their head. And then when the angels worship, drop down to verse 10, the Bible says these elders bow down before the Lord and lay their crowns down. Now, I don't have time to talk about this today, but if you've ever heard about casting crowns or throwing crowns before his feet, this is the verse that that comes from. And I don't know if it's a one-time thing. It, It appears to me from the language that every time this worship round goes on in heaven, they do that again. They cast the crowns at his feet again and again and again as a sign of worship. So how do I know that these 24 are not angels? How do I know that they're people? I need to borrow from my next message because the next message is Revelation chapter five. It's a message called the worship of heaven. But in Revelation chapter five, these 24 sing a song to the Lord. And I want you to look at the song because the lyrics of it prove that they have to be human beings like you and me. Verse, five, or verse nine, rather, of chapter five. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Well, remember the angels never had a chance to be redeemed. And whoever these guys and ladies or whoever they are, whoever they're, whoever they're, whoever's doing this song, well, there was a point when they were not redeemed because they said, you redeemed us. And then on top of that, they were redeemed by the blood and, and, and here's the thing, I, I, I personally believe that what we're looking at, and the reason for the 24 is you have, you have 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, you have 12 apostles in the New Testament. I think the 24 number represents believers from the old covenant, from when God worked through the nation of Israel, and then you have the, the, the people who represent the church age. And I know it represents the church age because the text says out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So I believe here you have 24 representatives. Remember, just as the seven churches represented all churches everywhere, you have 24 representatives that represent believers in heaven from the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, we come to a question. And hopefully this question has already been stimulated in your mind if you were here for the last two weeks and now you're here today. Because in Revelation chapter two and three, Jesus was talking to the church, to the church age. Where were the churches? They were on the earth. But now when we get to Revelation chapter four, we've got the church, but the church is not on the earth anymore. The church is in heaven. So let's just do a little CSI here for a moment and ask the question, If the church is on the earth in Revelation 2 and 3, as John was told, right, the things which are going on right now, and we get to Revelation chapter 4, the very first thing that happens in the future, we see the church represented in heaven, we got a question on our minds, how did the church get there? You see, when you get to Revelation chapter 6, and you go through chapter 6 through 19, which is the tribulation happening on the earth, how many times is the church mentioned? Those seven years on the earth. How many times, you got the book of Revelation. You can try to find how many times is the church mentioned. Now, chapters one through three, when Jesus talks to the church, 19 times. 19 times you have the expression church or church as. You get over to chapter 6 where the tribulation begins, which it does begin. The very first part of Revelation 6 is the coming of the the Antichrist kicks off the tribulation. That's right there in Revelation 6. Go all the way through 19, all those seven years on the earth. How many times do you find the church mentioned? 19 times, chapters 1 through 3. Zero. Why? Because 6 through 19 is what's happening on the earth. Chapters 4 and 5 are what's happening in heaven. So here's our CSI question. If the church is on the earth in Revelation 2 and 3, and it's in heaven right at the beginning of the future, how does it get there? How does the church which was here get there? Now, by the way, I want us to understand, when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about the building. This will stay, the building will stay here. We we love it, we appreciate it. After we're gone, the Antichrist can have it, okay? I'm talking about the church is always people, people like you and me, represented chapter two and three on the earth, chapter four. I don't know who those elders are. I mean, two of the disciples asked Jesus if they could sit on either side of him, and the Lord said, hey, that's up to God. God's decided who it's going to be. So I don't know. It could be somebody here. It could be one of you. Or I don't know. Maybe it's cycles. Maybe it's a different 24 every day. The Lord just doesn't give us that answer. But the church is in heaven at the beginning of chapter four. Now, here's the good news for us. Because the Bible tells us clearly how we get there in heaven. Now, somebody could say, well, Mark, um, I'm probably going to die. And uh, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And so that's how I'll be there. Well, that could be a partial answer, but it's sure not a complete answer. If you are fleet of finger, you could put a marker in Revelation chapter four and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter four. But if you can't get there, no worries. It'll be up on the screen behind me. When you read 1 and 2 Thessalonians, most of those two books are written about the future because the church at Thessalonica got all whacked. They got all messed up on this subject. And God allowed Paul to clarify it for them. And one of the things they were worried about is what's happened to our loved ones who have died. In verse 13, we don't have time to read it, Paul is saying, I don't want you to be outside of knowledge about what happens to those people who have died. He said, when Christ comes, he will bring them with him. But I want to go into verse 16 now, drop down to that, because the Bible tells us how the church gets from there to heaven. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. That's interesting. We saw the word shout there in Revelation 4. With the voice, we saw that too, of the archangel. And with the we saw trumpet, the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Now, every once in a while, I get this question, and thankfully, this particular text answers the question I'm about to share with you. People say, Mark, you say that when a Christian dies, a Christian goes to heaven, but now we're hearing that the Christians rise from their graves. Are they in the ground? If we go back earlier in the text, the Bible says the Lord will bring those who have died with him. Now, the very concept of that verb bring indicates Well, if I ask, if we're having a barbecue at my house and I ask you to bring the potato salad, the potato salad has to be with you before it gets to my house. Otherwise the word bring is not coherent. You can only bring something if it's with you. So what happens is the soul and spirit, when we die, you're not your body, you just live in your body. The real person who is you goes to be in the presence of God. The first Thessalonians chapter four says, God will bring that person with him. But when we die, we leave this body into the ground or it's burned but those molecules never go away. So when Jesus comes, in what we're reading about, the Lord is gonna put together that soul and spirit with a brand new body. So let's go back to verse 16. Those who have died will rise from the graves, then together with them, we, look at this next line, who are still alive. In other words, when Jesus comes, there are gonna be people who are never gonna die. I mean, if he comes this afternoon, some of you have already made funeral prearrangements. It's okay. Just tell the Lord you want the antichrist to have your casket. We who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up. Okay, let's open the can. Because some of you have heard about something called the rapture. Well, I've heard skeptics say the word rapture is not in the Bible. That kind of stuff just drives me crazy. If I had a dollar for every stupid thing I've heard in church, I would be a rich man. There are no English words in the Bible. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and New Testament is written in Greek. Everything we have is a translation. It, it comes down to these two words we just read, caught up. Because in Latin, those two words are translated into and translated into Latin. The word is rapturo. So we get pretty much a transliteration of that into our language, rapture, which, by the way, the word Trinity is not in the Bible either, but the concept is. So what we're reading about is what Bible students and Bible scholars call the rapture. Me, personally, I like evacuation as a better term, but they're both good. Okay, then together with them, verse 17, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, then we will be with the Lord forever. So our CSI question, how does the church get from there to heaven? We just read the answer. But just in case that's not enough, I want to slip over now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because Paul is explaining to the church at Corinthians what the rapture and the resurrection is going to be like. In verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, this whole chapter is great. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Translated, you cannot take this body to heaven with you. If you're over 50, you're like, praise God. But I know a bunch of you at New Spring, you know, you're 25 years old. You're working out you know, and, and you're, you're buff and you're ripped and, and, and you're drinking carrot juice and all these things. And I run into you at the workout facility and all you young guys love to just kind of show me how... I just want to say, wait till you see what time and gravity do to that body. (laughs) Now, the Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot go to heaven in the body that you're in right now. It would just blow it up because heaven's too awesome and the glory there, your body just wouldn't tolerate it. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Now, we're not talking about the kind of mystery you watch on television. The Greek word here is mysterion. It simply means truth that you could never figure out on your own. It has to be revealed. God is like, I'm going to show you something you could never come to on your own. What is that? We will not all sleep, not all of us are going to die. See, the problem is we don't even understand what death is because when we deal with death, all we have is what's left over. All we have left over is the shell that we lived in and death looks like the cessation of life, but it's not. The real person goes on to be with God, but the Bible says there are going to be people on the earth who will not die, but we will all be changed. In other words, we'll have to be reconstructed by the Lord. In a flash, that's how I got the title of today's message. Now the word flash there, and, and if you look at the next line in our text, it says in the twinkling of an eye, it's the same thing. It comes from the Greek word atomos. We get our word atom from that. Tomos means, the, the Greek word tomos means time. The prefix a before is a negative. So basically what it means, it's a, it's a unit of time So minute that it cannot be divided. Well, hey, we can divide seconds, can't we? We divide them into milliseconds. So the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes and all this stuff happens, it's going to happen in a unit of time that's so tiny and so minute that it cannot be divided. The Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, and we're not talking about a wink here, it's the involuntary flinching of the eye. I remember when I was young, young preacher, GE said it was 1 23rd of a second, then they said it was 146th of a second, then they said it was 1 1000th of, 1 1, of a second, but who's counting? See, this is the thing. When Jesus comes in this rapture or evacuation or whatever you want to call it, it will happen so quick that all we'll know is we were there and now we're in heaven. I mean, just bam, bam, or you go to sleep, you wake up in a different place. I'm so thankful for that because I have a fear of height. (laughs) I remember I was speaking in Toronto and they have one of those kind of like space needles like they have in Seattle. And the pastor of the church where I was speaking, he said, oh man, up there, you can go up there on the top and the bottom is plexiglass and you can just lay out. I said, no, I can't. (laughs) I said, I'll be in the coffee shop when you get back downstairs. And I used to listen when I was a kid about preachers talking about the rapture and they would talk about how we just suddenly begin to float up and float up high through the ceiling and float up through the clouds. And I thought, I'm not going to survive the rapture. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Like some of you, you come from the scientific perspective and you're like, how is the Lord going to put together the molecules of the new body with the soul and the spirit? Hey, listen guys, we don't even know how he put these molecules together. But it does happen quickly. Now there's wisdom, and I want to close with this. I say close just to give you hope. <laughs> I remember seeing a cartoon years ago. There was an angry man who was carving notches in the church pew in front of him. His wife says, Stop carving a notch every time he says, In conclusion. <laughs> what is this about? I mean, this thing where The Lord doesn't wait for everybody to die. And Jesus comes. We're not talking about the second coming. It's at the end of the book of Revelation. We'll get into that. Because he doesn't come all the way to the earth. He just comes and calls his people home. And what happens to the bodies? I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. But the one thing I know about God is God is very practical. And God has reasons for doing the things that he does. And I'll be the first one to tell you this is really unusual. Because For all the millennia of time, people have left here primarily by dying. There were a couple or two or three who were raptured out. These Elijah, Enoch. Why? You ready to go to work with me? This is a little bit of a challenge. I want to give you two reasons. The first one, the first one goes back to an Old Testament book. Daniel is a Jewish man who has been captured and taken into the Babylonian world. And because Judah had gone through idolatry, the Lord had said that they had to go into captivity for 70 years. And Daniel now is an elderly man, and he sees those 70 years are about closed, and he is asking God, How soon can we go home? How can we go back to Jerusalem? How soon? Because he sees 70 years almost finished. And Daniel is instructed by the Lord something very unusual. The Lord basically says, Daniel, this question is way much bigger than when you can go back. I wanna share with you my future plan for the ages. And by the way, if you have more interest in studying this, Clash 2 is the Daniel Chronicles. So if you wanna go back and watch that, you can. I s- still remember one of my favorite memories is I was preaching through that when uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, invited Mary Alice and me over to spend time, and I still remember having dinner with, uh, Israel has, the, the nation of Israel has a, an ambassador to world religions, the same, he has the same rank as ambassador to any nation. And we were having dinner at a little restaurant around the corner from the hotel in Jerusalem. And he asked me, who preached for you today? Because we landed on Sunday evening. And I said, I did. And he thought that was kind of funny because he knew I'd been on an airplane. And I said, well, it was shot in the studio. But I had the best time talking to him about God's promises to Israel in the book of Daniel. Now, you need to get that in your mind because we've been talking about the church age for the last few weeks, but for just a few moments, we need to go back to the old covenant because God has made promises to Israel that he is going to keep. And so Daniel has asked the Lord, how, how, how soon can we go back? And the Lord is, Daniel, it's way bigger than you can imagine. He said 70 sets of seven, that's 490 years, has been decreed for your people. Who's Daniel? Daniel's Jewish. And for your city, what's his city? Jerusalem. So the Lord is like, Daniel, I got business with Israel. And, and in 490 years, it's going to be finished. And you, I'm not going to read it right now, but you can look at this section in Daniel chapter nine, because the Lord lists for Daniel, all the things that are going to happen. Part of that was Messiah is going to come and he's going to make an end of sin and the Lord's going to finish everything up. So he said in 490 years, and some of you are saying, wait a minute, Mark, we're talking about maybe the sixth century BC and the Lord says he's going to finish everything up in 490 years. And wow, we're way past that. Hold on. Because you get down to verse 25 and the Lord tells Daniel something about the Messiah that must have blown his mind because Daniel is thinking like most people that when Messiah comes, he's going to be a descendant of King David and he's going to rule and reign forever. And everybody was hoping and looking for that. But the Lord blows his mind in verse 26 by saying, after 483 years, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Well, hey, if you're in Jerusalem in AD anywhere from 29 to 33, whatever the actual year was when Jesus was crucified, you would have said, if that man claimed he was Messiah, whoo, that went wrong because he just got crucified. He didn't accomplish anything. And isn't it interesting that 500 years before Jesus came, God said to Daniel, in 483 out of the 490 years, Messiah is going to die. And it looks like he didn't accomplish anything. But notice, the Bible says, appearing to have accomplished nothing. Because see, you and I know what he did accomplish. The first time he came, he had to pay for our sins. Okay, but 483, I thought you said 490. Those of you who are good at math, subtract 483 from 490, and what do you have left? You have Seven. See, what Daniel could not understand of the other prophets was when Jesus was resurrected, the Lord kind of stopped that particular clock and he started another clock. And that clock that he started was called the church. I mean, just a few weeks after Jesus rose from the grave was the day of Pentecost, and the church was kicked off, and there, it began with with the Jewish people, but ultimately, it went to all over the world, and all of us from all different backgrounds and races and situations. We now have become part of this glorious thing that the Lord called the church that's been going on for now over almost 2,000 years. But you got to understand that God has got a special relationship with the nation of Israel, and he's got unfinished business. And so consequently, the Lord needs to punch our clock. He needs to stop our clock and start the clock back with what he wants to do to keep his promises to Israel. See, here's the thing. If you want to understand the rapture, for those of us who are part of the church, we have to understand that we're in the way. If the Lord is going to finish his promises to Israel over seven years of time, he can't do this gradually. He's got to get us all out at one time which is why the rapture takes place. That's the first reason. You see what I mean by being practical? Now, back when Jesus was on the earth, he was talking about things that are going to happen at the end, and his disciples, they wanted to know. They said, when are these things going to happen? When is your coming? And what are the signs that are of your coming? Now, and if I lose you here, please, please just hang with me he gave a sermon. Some of Jesus' sermons are in the New Testament. We like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call this sermon the Olivet Discourse. And basically, this whole sermon is about the end times, and and Jesus is talking about what's gonna happen in the future. Now, you see this in Matthew, and you also see it in Luke. So in the Matthew account of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said to the disciples, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And in Luke chapter 17, Jesus said, and the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. And I got to tell you, I know we're in the last days. I know that for a lot of reasons, but I know it from, because the Lord said, watch Israel. And Israel became a nation in 1948, got Jerusalem. Remember, God was talking to Daniel about a city. Got it back in 1967, 2017, Israel. Jerusalem was recognized as capital of Israel. We're in the last days. Been in the last days for a long time. So, when Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, he's talking about our gen- you know, like the old song, who's the who? Talking about my generation. I just found out where my baby boomers are. Everybody under 30 is like, who's the who? <laughs> well, what were the conditions like in the days of Noah? Go back to Genesis 6 extreme violence. Now there's always been violence, but evidently the time, the antediluvian period right before the flood was characterized by extraordinary violence. I mean, I remember in 1966, a guy, I think his name was Gary Whitman, went up in the tower at the University of Texas, took a high powered rifle and and shot people. I mean, it was like the story of the decade. How many of you can remember all the mass shootings just this year? We're almost acclimatized to the violence of our times extreme violence. And then the Bible says people's minds were only on evil continually. So that's what things were like in the days of Noah. Well, what were they like in Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot? Deviant sexual behavior. What was wrong was considered normal. It had become normalized. And there was gluttony and arrogance The second characteristic, I mean, first of all, just make sure I covered this. What were conditions like in the days of Noah and Lot? First of all, extreme wickedness and violence. Secondly, you have believers who were locked inside a wicked culture. You have Noah and his family in those days. You have Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah. So you you feeling the parallel there? We're living in conditions similar to those times, and here we are as God followers, and we're in this world. And then the third characteristic that is inescapable is you have extreme means to rescue God's people from that culture. In Noah's day, you have an ark. In Lot's day, you have the angels coming to get Lot and his family out of town before this fire and brimstone fell. So you get that? Extremely wicked, violent culture. God's people locked in that culture. God gets them out before the water falls in the flood and before the fire and brimstone fall. In Lot's day. Now, someone will say, well, Mark, I mean, there are Christians that are living all kinds of lives. Will everybody go up who's a Christ follower? Well, let's look at the stories. With Noah, you have a person who's cooperating with God. He understands what God is up to for 120 years. He's sharing the good news, trying to get people on the boat. With Lot, on the other hand, you have a total opposite. Lot's of mess, He's not synced up with God. He's synced up with the culture around him. It gets under his skin sometimes just how ungodly it is. But for the most part, Lot just kind of like goes along to get along. He gets elected to the city council of Sodom. And think about this. This city is so wicked, God says there's nothing left to do with it except destroy it. And yet Lot evidently finds a certain level of comfort with the culture. And when the men of Sodom wanted Lot to put the two angels that came to his house outside so they could have sex with them... They only got a mild rebuke from Lot. And it isn't hard to see that his wife and daughters picked up a lot of the culture of Sodom. And yet, they were all evacuated, weren't they? Now, I have more to say about this in the future, but I want to deal with two things, and I am finished. I want you to know that nothing has to happen before Jesus can come back. There are no signs left to be fulfilled. They've already been fulfilled for the rapture. And you saw what I saw. At the end of the message to the church, we get the future. And the first thing we see is the church in heaven. So this could happen at any moment. I got to ask you a question Are you ready? You know, when the Titanic sank, there were a lot of people on that ship that were in various classes. There was first class, second class, third class steerage. There were people working on the Titanic. There were were crew on the Titanic. But you know what? The newspapers the next day only listed two categories, quote, saved and lost. And I got to ask you a question. Are you ready for Jesus to come? Have you invited Jesus Christ into your life to make him Lord and Savior of your life? And now I want to deal with something that really speaks to our times, because some of you are still thinking about something I said about three minutes ago, because I said, these were God followers in various stages of following God, and they all were evacuated. And you know what somebody's thinking here today? You're saying, "Mark, what difference does it make if I really live for God? I mean Why do I have to be a Noah?" Why do I have to be somebody that's synced up with what you're doing, being made fun of by everybody in town for building a boat when there'd never been rain? Why do I need to be a, a real committed God follower? Why can't I be like Lot and his family and not still go? You need to hear something. Noah got out with all his family. Lot didn't. The angel said to Lot the night before the fire and brimstone fell. The angel said to Lot, go warn your married daughters. Evidently he had married daughters. He probably had grandkids. And so Lot went to the houses of his daughters and sons-in-law. And he said, we got to prepare. We got to get out of this town because God's going to bring judgment. And the Bible says the most unusual thing. The Bible says they thought he was getting off a practical joke. New Springers, 21st century Americans, are we listening today? Lot was way more into comedy and entertainment than he was into following God. And it cost him, even though God rescued him, it cost him his family. Are you ready to go? And is your life and is my life the way I would want it to be if Jesus came today? We got a chance to get ready. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, I pray that those of us who are believers today will take this to heart and we'll get even more serious about following you. May we get radical about following you. May we not be afraid when this world looks at us and says that we don't fit here. May we agree with them and say, yes, this world is not my home. But on the other hand, Lord, help us to be like Noah, to tell everybody we can tell about Jesus. And now, Lord, in this next moment, we have an opportunity for those who don't know you yet to come to know you in an eternal relationship. May your Holy Spirit work as he does every week at New Spring. In Jesus' name. Would you keep your heads bowed, please? Whether you're watching here in South Auditorium, North Auditorium, online, on television, I wanna ask you the question, do you know for sure that you're ready to go? Do you have your ticket in your, well, not literally, but do, do you have your admission for heaven? The good news, it's not in a religion. It's not in what you do or don't do. It's in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Jesus bought your ticket when he died for you on the cross. His blood paid for your sins. Three days later, he came out of, the, out of the grave proving that he was the son of God. And the Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord, you can be saved. If you're willing to say, God, I don't want to go the path I've been going in the past. I want to receive Jesus. I want him to be my Lord and my savior. I believe he died for me. I believe he arose from the grave. Come into my life. The Bible tells us, that he will do that. Jesus says he'll come in. We saw that last week. So I'm going to pray a prayer. These are not magic words. The Bible just says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you want to pray it with me, you can. Here we go. Dear Lord, I am a sinner. I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since Jesus is alive, I want him to be my savior and my king. Help me live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just pray with me in any location, on or off campus, I have a gift box for you. It won't cost you anything. No strings attached. There's a new spring Bible in here. There's a book I wrote called My New Walk with God, some other cool things. If you're watching online or on television, text to us the word prayed, P-R-A-Y-E-D to 97,000. Follow the steps and we'll mail this to you. If you're on campus, you can get it right now. Just text PRAY to 97000, go out to any info center, you'll recognize them by the coloration. It's not diamonds and rubies, it's blue and white, but it's still pretty good. And so go out there and say you pray with me, they won't hassle, they'll give this to you, put it under your arm, take it home. God bless, we'll see you next weekend. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services.